This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. want to welcome ev- everybody to this evening's Mauer Report. I'm, ex- I'm excited about tonight's guest. And I think you will be, too, after we get into it. Uh, it that's going to seem a little... Well, we'll get there. Just calm down and stay with me for a little bit, because you're going to see where it goes, and it's going to be worth the full listen. So don't get turned off right away. I know it's a, a topic that some people are fatigued on, but we'll get there. Calm down. But before we begin, tonight's the tonight's my report, the views and opinions of this show are those of the host and guest and do not represent any sponsors, affiliated, or anybody else. Also worth mentioning, tonight's show is not medical advice, just in case anybody out there feels inclined, consult your own physician before starting any programs or anything else, just because I need to mention that, because we're going to be getting into medical stuff tonight, and I want to be ultra clear that this is just what we're thinking tonight, because in five, six, ten years, when somebody might be listening to this, might not be necessarily true or, or relevant, and it might not be true for you today, so... My guest tonight is Dr. Rand Goldman. Rand, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing good, Jim. Excellent to be with you. So, I know, I know. How oh, I didn't, I didn't copy that down. Can you give my listener? I was going to say, I know you're a doctor, and then I, I looked up and I didn't have it right on my notes. I seen it in the email. Can you give my 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 listeners the brief bio of who you are before we get started? Absolutely, great to be with everyone uh, this night, and I'm an emergency physician. Um, and a pediatrician. Uh, we call it an emergentologist, someone who's dealing with acute uh, pain, acute injuries, and uh, people who have uh, illnesses. Think about someone who's going to the emergency department. I'm the one you're going to see as the doctor there, trying to uh, save lives, uh, uh, deal with runny noses uh, when people decide to come to emergency for that, and ensure that children are safe and going home with their parents reassured and doing well. So I, I'm going to dip back to that because I also know you've conducted a study about COVID and I wanted to start there because I, I want to kind of get that heaviness out of the way because I, I do want to talk about emergency medicine and some other things that you do. But the study was, well, it was fascinating about the vaccine. So I, I'm not going to try to read the witness. I'm just going to let you talk about it for a second and then we'll come back and with some other questions. I'd love to talk about this, Jim. So you know, we understood early on in this pandemic, in February and March of 2020, we realized uh, we're dealing with something big, something that changes our lives. And I know the listeners know, know that because all our lives are have changed. Not only that, we're in all of this together. So together with a network of other physicians from emergency departments, 17 of them all over the world, we put together our heads and said, how can we help children and understand what their parents think? Because it's the parents that will drive management and care for children. So what we did, we asked them the easiest way to hear what the attitudes and thoughts of parents. And we asked them in all those 17 emergency departments in six countries and said, hey, tell us what you think about COVID. Thank you. Tell us what are your plans. And some of the questions were associated with vaccines for two reasons. 
one, there's no vaccine yet ready and approved for COVID itself. So we wanted to know if parents intend to do that and take the vaccine for their children once it's ready. The answer, I'll tell you already, is a yes, uh, almost a resounding yes. I would say 50% yes. We heard from about 50% of parents that we asked, they said, yes, we're going to give this vaccine to our children. Another question we asked was associated with influenza vaccine, because just as we speak, Jim, influenza is around the corner uh, waiting to hit us as uh, individuals, including our children, in another influenza season, just like any year. We wanted to know if parents intend to vaccinate their children against influenza, a vaccine that is available and given mostly free of charge by governments and public health offices and um, relatively easy to, to find in a pharmacy near you. We also heard from parents that about 50% of them intend to give influenza vaccine, which is higher than the usual rate of vaccination by parents. So, you know, we, we saw an increase of about 15% compared to a year before in the intention to give the vaccine. But if you looked at the data and what we published was showing parents that did not give the vaccine in the previous year, how many of them changed their mind? We saw that a quarter of those parents changed their mind and are going to vaccinate. And we looked at why they decide to do so. One of the reasons is their fear and concern about COVID-19. As I say, did you ask about how many are worried, actually actively worried about their child getting it? Yes, we asked them uh, in a scale of 0 to 10, how many of you or how much are you worried about your child having COVID-19 now when you're in emergency? And how much are you worried about yourself having COVID-19? It was so important to understand the correlation between the intentions and attitudes and how worried they are. And there was a very clear correlation that we showed scientifically and what we call statistically significant between how worried you are and whether you're going to take action. Yeah, I, I said you're thinking because I know, like, my family, the trips to just, like, the normal pediatrician checkups have been offset. And, you know, like, everything is more scrutinized now. Do we really need to go and all this other stuff? So I'm assuming you're seeing the same thing, like you're, the like the number of cases are you're seeing are down. Are they still down, or are we are we starting to trend back up, or where where are we with that? I assume you're talking about COVID uh, cases, right? I'm, I'm just talking about cases in general. Like, you know, there's always the people that would just take their kid to the emergency room just because right. they have an ear ear infection to be. Yeah, is that still like are people still doing that, or is that down as well? So great question, because we looked at this as well. You know, as a scientist, as a professor in university, I, I keep asking myself those questions and my colleagues. Let me tell you, we were shocked the first few weeks of COVID around. We did not have here in Canada, where I practice, we didn't have a very high rate of COVID-19. Yet, we saw that 70% reduction in the number of families coming to our emergency department. 70%. We were sitting there waiting for people to come in. Not so much so, we were worried that people that need to come to emergency are not showing up. Maybe they were worried about going out of their house. Public health said, stay, shelter in place. Maybe they don't want to interrupt our work because we're constantly maybe intubating patients with COVID. 
Maybe it's something else. But we were quite surprised and nothing like I've seen before in 25 years of practice. So we saw a 70% decrease in the number of families coming, mostly those that didn't need to be there. You're talking, Jim, about the painful ear, um, runny nose, and other very minor trauma. They did not come. They didn't... uh, uh, they decided to stay home or try find other solutions. The trend is moving back into the norm. We are seeing more patients now coming, feeling more free, freedom to, to approach your pediatrician, your emergency physician. So we're not 100% back to the numbers we've seen, but this was quite an interesting phenomena, um, which we haven't seen before. Yeah, because I, I know... There, you know, there's all these conspiracies out there because hospital parking lots are empty. And I'm thinking if you're not letting visitors in and people are avoiding the emergency room because they don't want to get sick and there's no elective surgeries and all these, I mean, like you start peeling layers back. Well, those are the people that would normally be in those parking spots because you guys are still there doing your jobs. It just made me baffled at times. I'll be honest. And, and I agree, Jim, you have to ask questions. And I can tell you our parking lots, just like the ones you know of, um, were empty. So what the hospital did is stop ask for parking fees. The government here in, in, uh, in my jurisdiction, British Columbia, beautiful British Columbia, have stopped charging for parking fees. Uh, one of the ways to say to people, you know what? Here is one more barrier we're going to reduce for you to be able to see a doctor when you need it. And just as you say, a lot of people stopped working in the office because that's the right thing to do, not to bring in a patient that may have COVID um, and then contaminate a, a waiting room and other people in that area. So we were the show in town. We were the emergency where you can go because we're open 24-7, and yet people did not show up. So very unique um, position where we're going to study this for years. Yes, I know I'm paying attention to it just because it it's current and it's fascinating because there are so many things that are impacted. And, and through the course of the summer, I kept going, I need to get a doctor in here so I can document this. So in a couple of years, we can come back to this and say, in October of 2020, this is what it was like. Because people are going to be interested in the raw emotion plus the numbers, I think. So thank you for coming on. That's that's why you're here. So in the grand scheme of COVID, where are we at? Are we, I mean, because I keep hearing second wave. We're, I mean, I we're still looking for a, a vaccine to be per, get into the next level of trials. So how far actually are we into it now? So COVID is here and with us. Everyone of your listeners knows that. It impacted our life. It changed the economy. Um, I can't tell you how many people lost their work um, and children lost school. We're seeing the impact of COVID now, and uh, it's quite frightening. Again, as a pediatrician, I look at children. Um, You know, there's a report from Tennessee just a, a week ago or so where they found that because children couldn't go to school, 50% of them had, uh, sorry, uh, they had a 50% reduction in reading proficiency. Uh, 65% had resulted in reduced skills in math. This is huge. And that's even before we talk about the mental health impact of COVID on our children, our future. So that's 
we're starting to discover what are the impacts of COVID as a pandemic, what is the impact of closing schools and offices and workplace and so on. That's from a community perspective. And as a pediatrician, I have to care for this. It's not only the medical stuff, it's everything around it. Parents that are unhappy or don't have income or are stressed, this impacts children as well. So we need to remember this. And I don't think we solved all the problems. Despite being in this for 10 months or so, we're still seeing the impact. Now, for the medical stuff, COVID is here. We have thousands of people um, infected with the virus. Um, it is a, a second phase. And, you know, in Spain, they're talking about the third phase. We're seeing an, a huge impact in Europe as well, which will outflow if we start travel. So in terms of the virus itself, it's still here, and uh, I, I don't see it disappearing very quickly. Some people say that we're going to live with COVID for a very long time. When we talk about vaccines, this is really a fascinating story because it took years and years to develop vaccines for all those uh, illnesses that we know of. This time around, the medical community, the public health community, and everyone turned their attention to the vaccine development, uh, which is really good. And I love the fact that people are interested in how vaccines are being investigated and looking at the details of what's the phase one, phase two, and phase three trials. And I'm happy to, to talk about this. But people are starting to talk the language of research, which I love, and it's my passion. The vaccine is moving quickly forward. We've never seen development of vaccines as quickly. We've never seen uh, the FDA, the CDC, and other governments um, around the world uh, putting effort, money, and interest into developing a vaccine. And the bottom line, I think that somewhere in the beginning of next year, maybe March or April 2021, we will see the vaccine uh, safe, effective, approved, and starts to be distributed for people to receive it. Uh, we still have a long way there, and uh, we can talk about news items from the last few days showing that some of those trials had to stop, uh, stop temporarily. And, and I'd love to hear yeah, what yeah. you think, Jim, and talk about it. But that's probably where we're at, looking towards the beginning of next year. Let me jot, let me jot a note down here. Uh, we're going to come back to the, the stopping of the trials, but I've got a question for you that kind of, well, it doesn't matter how I estimate it's going to be crooked at this point. Uh, once we get the vaccine approved, now I've I've been trying to figure this one out, and I've heard a range of different things. How long, I mean, it depends, I guess, on who gets it approved, how long it takes to produce it and get it out on mass, because, I mean, it's great to have one, but then you got to get it to the majority of people who are going to take it. You're absolutely right. And one of the fascinating things about this vaccine this time around is that companies are already manufacturing it. Millions of dosages of this vaccine, one of those or some of those vaccines, and we have 180 candidates in the works. Companies have put money and effort and energy into producing it as we speak, Jim, in this show that you have. Um, because there is a very high likelihood that in the end of the day, in the end of the trials, those vaccines are going to be uh, uh, reaching a stage where the FDA will approve them. And again, in other countries, other jurisdictions, 
uh, governments and, and regulatory bodies will approve. So the companies are taking risks by producing something that they don't have approval for in order for the next morning, once you, they get the approval, they can ship it. And they ship it to throughout the U.S. in order for people to receive it. Then public health will decide who's, who should stand in front of the line. Is it people with chronic illnesses? Is it the older uh, individuals in our communities? But what's interesting about this is that we're going to be hopefully ready, and that's the plan, to be ready with millions of dosages to get uh, shipped uh, through couriers all over the states the next morning it's approved. I'm sitting here going, that's a big gamble, but I'm assuming there's probably some, I'm going out on a limb here, and you could correct me, I'm sure, um, everything's probably way more computerized. I, I, I've been thinking about the polio vaccine, right, just because kind of a, a benchmark kind of a way to look at things. But everything's way more computerized now, and the world is so much smaller that we can, guess, gamble potentially millions of dollars on being right about what we're doing so we can be first to market just blows my mind yeah i I think you know i'm not in industry i work in a university uh, of british columbia in a hospital but my understanding of the industry is that um you know maybe it's not such a big gamble because vaccine programs have been developed in the past there's so many vaccines out there and um and, and they can predict that it will be approved they still need to prove this they still need to show in studies systematically that not only is the vaccine effective and the body reacts to this by developing antibodies against COVID, but also it's safe. And for me as a parent, for me as an individual, I'm going to take the vaccine only if I know that it's safe. And I'm sure your listeners are asking themselves the same thing. Is it going to be safe enough? Maybe I should wait. Maybe I should wait for others to take it first and see what happens. Well, that's why studies are being done for those first people, first volunteers to receive this and make sure it's safe. So I think the industry is smart enough, experienced enough to know that eventually those are going to be approved. And again, there are about six vaccines now in very late stages of uh, studying. And you're right, there's, there's a lot of money in it, I'm sure, um, if you're the first or if you're very successful. But because we have so many people around the world, I think all of them, once approved, will, will have people to receive them. And then you mentioned these stops. Now I'm sitting here going, if I'm producing them and then I have to stop my research, this kind of scares me. I mean, as the the stakeholder, not me as the person, I want them to stop and make sure things are done right. So just to be clear, I, you know. But I'm putting my, uh, my company hat on, my researcher hat. <laughs> So why, why why would we yeah. st- why would we stop research? I guess let's start there. Okay, so uh, Jim, this is a great question, and I I want all the listeners uh, to your show understand that I'm actually quite relieved when I hear that a study was stopped temporarily in order to evaluate and investigate. What happens, and that's true for all studies, all all clinical trials, as we call them. When we evaluate and do studies on humans, whether it's a new drug or an old drug. We need data safety monitoring committees. Those are usually independent investigators, could be PhDs or physicians or uh, pharmacists or others, that know and understand what research is and understand the risks that volunteers are taking on themselves when they're willing to try a new drug. So what those uh, committees do is they monitor very closely everything that happens in a trial. 
So it doesn't matter if you're in Pennsylvania, in Ohio, or California, if you're a volunteer in a study, you're going to receive the drug, but you're also going to be monitored very carefully. Either stay in a hospital, stay in a clinic, or someone, a research assistant, is going to call you every day and ask, hey, John, how are you doing? Um, how are things? Did you have any side effects? If they say no, they say, here, let, let me read you a list of side effects. Did you have any of those? So this is monitoring of a clinical trial. All this data comes to this one committee that is independent of the manufacturer, and they have the huge power of saying, stop. We are not going to let you guys continue with this study because we're seeing a bunch of side effects that are appearing in all those three states. It could be one patient in one state. It could be 10 patients out of 20,000. But this committee has the power to stop everything, halt it, and say, wait, let's investigate those five patients, five subjects as in the trials, as we call them, and see what happened. Maybe it's random. Maybe actually five subjects out of 10,000 that had vomiting this is actually lower than the rate in the population of people that have vomiting from eating something bad. This committee will also finish the investigation and give the green light to continue and do the trial. And that's what we're seeing with three of those vaccines now. We're just hearing about it in the news because it's news. But this is exactly what happened in any clinical trial. And I can tell you as a, as a scientist, as an investigator, I'm reassured that there is a committee that can do that. I would be really worried if uh, manufacturers and new drugs can just float around and no one is monitoring and can stop the trial. And I will tell you, Jim, I'm not worried about those stops. They're not going to delay the research significantly, maybe a few days here and there. But this will provide people the safety net and the understanding that someone looked at this and the vaccine is safe. So I'm going to ask you this question because this is a very simple question, but it's not. What other things are you looking for to make sure the vaccine's safe? Well, great. Uh, I, I'm, I'm glad you're asking because this is what goes in the head of a lot of people and a lot of parents. Well, for me, safety, first and foremost, is is there scientific background that explains that this vaccine is going to be effective? So what's the background? Did you use as a company or did we as a scientific community used a similar way to develop a vaccine. I know it's a new virus. COVID-19 is a new disease with a new type of virus, but the techniques have already been there. For example, taking a virus like adenovirus, which is a really common virus that causes cold symptoms, and changing a gene within this adenovirus and then inserting it as a vaccine into our body. This has been done for many, many years. There's nothing new about it. All the company is doing is changing the type of vaccine by changing the gene using a COVID-19 virus gene. So first, what's the scientific background? Second, I want to make sure that a sample size is big enough that when I get the vaccine or my children are going to get the vaccine, there, there were enough volunteers and enough subjects in trials that have tried this. And this is why there are 50,000, 70,000, 40,000 people trying this vaccine before it gets to even the FDA to think about it. So for me, it's important that the sample size have been scientifically sound and the methodology that it was trialed was good enough. And then finally, is it manufactured in a way that is clean, sterile, and the way that it should be for 
us to stay safe and not to get contamination from the vaccine. And this is something the FDA and other regulatory bodies are looking at very, very carefully. You can't just do it in the basement. It needs to be a manufacturing facility that is approved, accredited, and known. So those are kind of the big, big items for safety. There's many, many more items within those uh, um, chains. But in the end of the day, you know, what's important is there is science. It's been trialed well and in phases of trials as mandated by the uh, U.S. government. And um, manufacturing is appropriate. You know, there are little other things. They're not little. They're fundamental. But, for example, if a vaccine need to be delivered to the beautiful uh, state of Florida in, in a cold environment, that this is done appropriately. Because if it's not delivered appropriately, the whole list of billions of dollars invested in um, manufacturing and developing a vaccine is all out the window. So it sounds like a minute uh, piece in the end of the chain, in the last mile. It is not. It's part of the whole chain of events to get a safe vaccine to people. Makes sense. I mean, it makes sense. I hadn't thought about it, but as you're saying, and it makes sense to me. Um, just a random side note, the Daily Collegian, which is the newspaper there in State College, Pennsylvania, is reporting that Penn State just reported nearly 200 new student cases today. I don't know where that settles with anything, but it's just my wife just sent it to me, so I'm just passing it on to, I don't know why, but there it well, is. Sorry I mean, to hear that there are more sick uh, students, but, you know, once uh, once we open schools, this is expected. So I, I'm, I'm not surprised to hear that, uh, uh, but um, I hope they recover quickly. I was going to say, so, but this, this does tie into you, I guess, kind of. I mean, as schools are opening... What kind of things are you doing to be ready, just in case it spreads like in that case there? Yeah, so there, there are a lot of things that are being done, uh, and those are public health measures. You know, first, um, make sure the schools are ready. They're clean. They're, uh, they're, there are ways to wash hands and, and so on. The second thing that people can do in order to ensure schools are safe is to put children in cohorts. When I say that, I mean groups, maybe 20 uh, students that are all together and all day long, and there's not mixing of people from or, or students from one group to another. This is fundamental in order to ensure that if one of the kids becomes sick, maybe because they caught it out there somewhere, maybe from their parents, you never know who, who it is. You're trying to trace them. In that case, if a student is sick, you can find the other 20 students that have been exposed to this kid for the whole uh, day or the whole week at school and do tracing at them and test them for COVID. If you start mixing a big school of a thousand students and they all play outside all together, this has become a huge headache, not only for the uh, teachers and the principal, but the whole public health of that state. So by putting children or students in cohorts helps a lot. But also the, the other things public health uh, is telling us, put a mask on as much as possible. And I can't tell you how quickly children get used to, to, to wearing a face mask, much faster than we do. So that's another measure if they can. Uh, washing hands, ensuring they bring food from home or receive packaged food so there's no transmission and close contact. And as much as possible, 
stay six feet uh, apart from others, just what we hear in the news. That can be done. But, you know, it's really important to open the schools when possible, when those measures can be, take place. I'm going back to what I said earlier about the mental health of our kids. And this is critical because being isolated at home, whether you have online school or not, which is difficult in itself for schools to, to deliver, but the, the fact that you're isolated has, has been uh, quite damaging and, and we need to move on. Uh, this pandemic can stay for quite some time now. We can't keep the kids uh, at home all the time. Yeah, uh, one of my listeners, Germantown Runner, wanted me to ask you, what are some of the other, I mean, we talked about, um, we kind of, I don't want to say we glossed over it, but I want to get back into it now because it's an interesting thing, especially since you're a pediatrician, about, we talked about the uh, educational skills to meshing, and what other things are we, what am I missing um, for the, through this for children? Because I, I, are children getting, I don't want to say depressed because I, I don't believe, I mean, obviously I know children can get depressed, but. They have to be excited to be home at some point too, right? Or is, am I just trying to be over simple to over simple about this? Well, I, I think you're writing, you're asking the right questions, Jim. Uh, depressed is the right word, and anxious and worried, and uh, it could be a clinical diagnosis of anxiety that exacerbated because they're sitting at home in front of of the screen trying to study. But it's mostly the fact that they lack the social interactions. It's fun going to school for most kids. And it's part of the environment and the setting where they learn skills for life. I don't care about this math issue. Well, obviously I care, but I think you can catch on your math skills later. This is not the core of the problem. The issue is the lack of social interactions, the lack of developing social skills, being more on your screen with social media that may not be the best thing for a growing brain, And you probably know children's brain is growing until they're 21, not growing physically, but being developing, being in development very late. We didn't know that many years ago, but we now know that the development of the brain continues until you're about 21. That's why we all made mistakes when we were younger than that. (laughs) So it's the social skills, it's the learning and it's the mental health, which include more depression. I'm seeing this in my practice. I can tell you many more children that are being isolated, um, not because home is not good for them, but because they're lacking the interaction with friends that was physical, that was uh, one-on-one or the whole school or seeing people or participating on, you know what, hugging someone. That's gone. We need to, to get back to this once we can, but in the interim, do whatever we can to support the mental health of of our children. That's an interesting thing because I've been, well, the election in the United States has been polarizing to say the least, and I'm not going to get into that with you. I'm just using that as the frame of reference that um, social media has become so vile and toxic for even adults. I mean, the last 90 days, and it's only ramped up because people have more time now because they're not doing X, Y, and Z. And then I didn't think about children who aren't necessarily set in ju- I don't want to say set in judgment, but understanding of how the, all this all plays together and understanding everything just sees the anger and the angst in the world. It has to be, it has to be incredibly damaging. I don't know if there's a question there or not, but it's just baffling to me now that I'm thinking about it, that all of the things that I haven't put together yet. Yeah. 
No, I agree. There is a lot of questions we need to ask. And um, exposure to social media has importance for children. This is the way children connect today. Um, and, and that's true for a lot of our, the young generation, the, the Generation Z or anyone you, you're thinking of. Um, yet, uh, we, we need to be careful and we need to let p- children know that what they see on social media is not always reality. And, and uh, getting them into uh, understanding that there's life beyond what they see on social media and different accounts is really important. So I want to shift gears just a little bit, and I, I got a few other things that I mentioned to you that I wanted to talk about. We're already half an hour in, and we're just finally getting out of this into, I don't want to say brighter topics, but it's an interesting one to me. Um, as as the emergency doc, what what are parent? When should parent like? I know I'm a parent. I have these conversations with my wife, right? Should we go? Shouldn't we go? Give us give us some broad, mind, not COVID stuff, just in general. What kind of things we should be thinking about taking them for and and not? That question, and I'm being asked, Jim, this every day. When should we go to emerge, Doc? And the answer is not as simple. We'll need more than another half an hour to talk about <laughs> this. But but the bottom line is, when in doubt, go. Uh, don't stay behind because you think, I'm not sure if this is the right place or the right thing. That would be my my most uh, fundamental uh, answer to this question. When in doubt, go for it. Um, I I, want to tell you, sometimes I'm seeing families that are coming for such a minor issue that I have to ask them, what made you come to an emergency department in a large hospital, wait in line to see us, and still be patient and, and have your kids, sometimes at 2 a.m. And I ask this question, and they tell me, listen, I was worried about my child. So that's a good enough reason sometimes to go and see your doctor or, or go to emergency. Other times I see parents that were waiting at home way too long, which could have caused delay in arrival and complications. It happens. Why? Because their judgment at that point of time was, it doesn't look that bad. Maybe we can wait. Let's, let's get through this. Maybe it's nothing big. And then the appendicitis uh, appears, the appendix uh, rupture, and they come to emerge, and the child looks very sick. So there's no rule of thumb that I can use uh, for your audience, but I would just say when you're not sure, ask someone. Today, there's a lot of virtual health that is is, uh, provided. You can call a doctor online. This is propagating, and we're going back to talk about COVID. I'm not going to elaborate on this, but I know your audience is aware of services that are available in different states when it comes to um, seeing a doctor online, a licensed doctor online, and uh, as well as maybe seeing your pediatrician or family doc or or making a call to... uh, a place where you can get some advice. But if you're not sure, there's no other alternative, go to emergency. Don't wait too long. And I just want to stress the point that he mentioned in there. I, I know that I'm guilty of this at times. Not I've seen, oh, I'm sure you could probably tell me a story about this, but I won't ask you to, um, of somebody just being irate because they're just tired of waiting. And you guys are legitimately, I know, doing the best you can to serve how many other people you've got there. It's not like I'm the only person there, no matter how much I want to believe that. In my little world, I'm the only person that, well, me and my child most of the time, right? I, I want to believe I'm the only one that's there and I'm the only one that matters, but there are probably 
at any given point from five to how many other people there. So patience yeah, yeah. is just unbelievably important. Go ahead. No, and, and Jim, I, I, I want to stress something and tell you what I tell parents when, when they're sick and tired of waiting. First, I think they're right. It's really hard to wait when you have a sick child with you and you're anxious and you're waiting for answers and you want the best, best treatment and best options for your child. No question asked. You're there uh, not because you felt like, hey, let's go shopping into the emergency department. You're going because you felt that there's a need to care for your child. So that's the basic uh, rationale of being an emergency. But I do explain to parents that in emergency, unlike going with your car to the shop, we can't see you as you come. We can't see you um, in, in the order of arrival to emergency. We use a system called triage, which is a French word to say we're looking early on in your, as you arrive to emergency, a very experienced nurse or um, physician will see your child get an impression of how quickly they need to be seen. And we have to see the sickest first. And we grade them in this triage category, whether it's resuscitation, rushing the patient, rushing the child into the trauma room and doing uh, cardiopulmonary resuscitation, or it's a level that is not urgent and you may have to wait because we need to see all those very sick ones that came early on. Triage started by Napoleon in the French army. What he did, there were a lot of soldiers fighting and many have been wounded and maybe killed. So he had medics go to the field and assess those soldiers very quickly and say, you know, this soldier, we can do something quickly, uh, move their neck or uh, uh, put a, a bandage around their wound, and they can go back to the fight. They can go back to the field. This one on the other side that the medic saw is so wounded and, and so unwell, they're not going to live. We have to let them go. So this is the first time triage system had started, and you know what? Napoleon has passed away a long time ago. We're still using this system where we need to assess the patient as they arrive, but that means some will wait and some will be seen faster. So I think this is the, the, what I'm trying to explain to parents. And you know what? When I tell a parent, you know, your child is not that sick, maybe you can wait further. Uh, we ask you to wait further. They really understand this. Once you explain the triage system, they realize, you know what, you just reassured me. My child is not as sick. They didn't have to be rushed into a room with a seizure or severe asthma. Yeah, that's that's the thing. Once you, real, once you get those nerves calmed down just a little bit that, you know, somebody's actually working on it and there's others above you and it's, oh, it's that moment, those moments of not knowing anything, I guess, is probably the most anxious moment for, for a parent, I'm sure. Being a parent, I know I'm not saying I'm sure, but okay. So I want to shift gears with you once again because this one caught me off guard this afternoon in a big way, and I know you're excited about it because you have to be. The virtual reality and pain, and I seen that you were part of. I want to say a study, but maybe it's just a paper. You can correct me here about reading face uh, using facial recognition for pain in children, which. As a parent, I know that that's something that I I totally wholeheartedly struggle with because when they tell me it hurts, and they're you know bouncing off walls, it they don't necessarily always align. So go ahead and get get me started into this because it's just phenomenal to me. Thank you for asking. Thank you for letting me talk about this. This is my passion. 
Listen, it started from the fact that as an emergency physician in a pediatric setting, I'm causing a lot of pain to children. I'm doing blood work and I'm testing uh, their urine, uh, sometimes with a catheter. I'm uh, poking them. I'm giving them medications with injections. I'm setting uh, their bones when they're broken. So these are all very painful procedures. So basically the second day in my practice, about 20 odd years ago, I realized that we need to do more for the pain that children have, especially in the acute care setting. So I embarked on a journey that is probably never going to finish. You, you will never cure all the pains that children may have, especially around procedures. There will always be something you can do. And that's why in the university, I developed a few labs that look into ways to manage and reduce the pain that children have. We tried to call it the ouchless emergency department. It's never going to be completely ouchless, but we aim at that. We aim to get there. So why not utilize technology that is developing so quickly in front of our eyes? Well, there was no Internet 20 years ago or whatever. Maybe I'm exaggerating, but... (laughs) See where we're at today, 2020, um, how can we utilize technologies? And you mentioned virtual reality. Virtual reality, probably 10 years ago, was a big, chunky computer that you roll on or needs half, half a room connected to a, a, a source of uh, computerized power and electricity. That was 10 years ago. That's all. Today... Anyone can go into a shop and buy goggles, um, and Google sells uh, a $1 uh, uh, um, cardboard goggles that you can put a, a regular, simple, out-of-the-ordinary um, mobile phone into that piece of, of equipment and completely be transformed. And when you give it to children and you show them and put them into a mode of being into this virtual reality, we believe in my hospital, in my lab, that we can make a difference and reduce the amount of pain and anxiety that they feel. So yes, you can give medications for pain, no question, but there are also psychological ways to reduce pain by distracting those children. And virtual reality is one of the ways that we're looking and exploring in order to ensure that a child is distracted while you're doing procedures. Just the other night, Jim, I had to suture a child that had the laceration. They were playing, fell, uh, hit the, the coffee table, and got a laceration in their hand. We put the goggles, and they played a, a game on that set of virtual reality, and I was able to easily anesthetize the area of the laceration and put stitches in it. And the child was happy. And this is something we're, we're shocked at, but we shouldn't be. The child was distracted. He was a seven-year-old. Distracted, available. And you know what? It made my work easier. Didn't have to struggle. Didn't have to hold him, what we sometimes call brut- brutalism, um, and was able to put the stitches. They were beautiful. So this is one, one example of um, technology that we're trying to utilize. And let me just say one more thing before, before stopping me, because I can talk about this forever. When you look at the research and the science behind virtual reality, 
people did studies with functional MRI. Those are the big machines, the MRI magnetic imaging, where you lie on a table, it brings you backwards and look through magnetic fields inside your brain. And when people had virtual reality goggles on, they were so distracted that causing pain stimulation could not be detected in five areas of the brain where we express pain. So this is not something I dreamt off uh, one night. This is shown scientifically that there is a merit to using technology in order to distract people. We still have a huge amount of work in front of us to make sure the virtual reality works. But you know what? The, the first part is already with us, which is accessibility. It's really easy to take a mobile phone, put an app that is usually free into goggles that costs, I don't know, maybe 20 bucks, 30 bucks, and, and get some technology into our space. So I'm excited about that, but uh, I'm trying to, to have others excited as well. Well, that's why I want to talk to you about it, because you're getting me excited about it. Are, are, okay, so you mentioned that what's playing a game. Is there, is, do you, I, guess, I guess you've probably already thought about this. Is there, do games work better for children, or is it just even just having enough of the distraction no matter what it is? So it's a great question, and not all the answers are with us. We still need to do some work, but we're looking for a virtual world, whatever the child likes. In one study that we did, we offered children in different ages to choose between four different apps. And let me tell you, we downloaded those apps for free. We didn't have to spend a dime on that study. So a child chose what kind of uh, uh, game they like. It could be horses walking back and forth. We did a lot of studies about a roller coaster. Kids love roller coasters. They would... They were excited. And with virtual reality, you can look up and down onto all the sides and see the, the cars on, on the roller coaster and go again and again in this roller coaster. They were so excited about this that they forgot or were distracted from the pain that we had to, to do when we put an IV in or took blood work. And it's not only in our lab. This has been repeated in many places uh, all over the world. So... First and foremost, it's not only the pain that we reduce with those apps, it's also anxiety. Because children are worried when they go. We just talked about vaccines. To get a vaccine, to get an immunization means a needle. And this needle can be painful. Uh, I don't believe if someone is telling you, that, oh, don't worry, it's not going to hurt. For a child and for an adult, this is going to hurt. Well, it's a needed pain, but let's try and find ways to reduce this. So any kind of virtual world we can create, a game that you're active with or a game that you're passive, you're just looking around, so far we're seeing reduced anxiety. We're still working on reducing the amount of pain you feel. And I, I think as being a parent, I'm putting my parent hat back on for a minute. Maybe that's where we're just going to keep this conversation. Um, with our child not being anxious, my anxiety level goes down because – you know, as time kind of slips away, if they're not, you know, bouncing or I, I keep using the expression bouncing off the walls, but if they're anxious to get going, what am I anxious to do? Because I, I'd rather be at home, right? Instead of being in the hospital with the child who is just feels great now because I had some medicine. We're trying to wait to get out or whatever the case may be. So if their anxiety is down, obviously mine's down. So that's, that's a, a huge factor right there. I guess I'm, I'm partially asking because. <laughs> 
Now, see, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking about applications across the board, and I'm thinking back to my 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 history. In January, I had carpal tunnel surgery, and I was awake, right? And that was my choice. I mean, they obviously offered me, you know, but it became a bigger process if they wanted me to be sedated. And I said, no, let's do it awake. It's not, you know, doctor explained it. And I said, oh, no, that's not a problem. But let me tell you, laying there, looking up at the ceiling, you know, in this operating room, and them starting, he's like, it's, it's going to pinch a little bit. And I'm like, okay. Yeah, well, his little bit and my little bit are a little different. Um, mildly. Um, but, I mean, it wasn't bad, but just to be sitting there listening to him talking about what he was doing, and it was not necessarily the most comfortable experience of my life, even though I appreciated him telling me what was going on. On the other hand, I didn't, eh, wasn't necessarily my cup of tea, but anyways. But if I could have been somewhere else, or even, because I think back to my last time I was on an MRI machine, they were playing music which was supposed to be relaxing which it would have been if it wasn't for that big loud noise that kept kicking in once in a while uh, <laughs> but I, I think I think the more um, we can distract our minds even as adults would be helpful through some of these medical procedures so I, I'm glad to see that you're looking at children of course I'm as an adult I'm, I'm jealous but uh, you're, you're asking you're asking the right question and we asked this we actually, in all those studies we did with children, we asked the parents, how satisfied are you from the procedure? Guess what? The parents that were on the virtual reality compared to those that did not get the virtual reality were much more satisfied with the care their children received. Why? Because the child was happy. We then asked parents, would you like to use virtual reality next time your child needs a procedure? We had a vast majority over 80% say, absolutely, yes, please bring it on. So, you know, we're doing those randomized controlled trials where we're giving one intervention like virtual reality and the other group of children not receiving but receiving what we call standard of care, which could be a child reading a book or watching TV or playing on an iPad or their parents sing a song. Those are all ways we distract children. And we still found that virtual reality was better when it comes to anxiety and concern. The children, but also the parents, which to me is fascinating and, and tells me we need to continue and investigate. Maybe there is something in this technology now accessible that we can help and, and make the practice of pediatrics and pediatric emergency better. Yeah, because I, I referenced to you when we started talking this, this evening before we went on air about how I thought virtual reality was going to take a major step forward just because, you know, we mentioned travel and all these other things that are still kind of sticky at best, put it nicely. Um, so people are going to want to go experience things, and I think virtual reality is going to allow us to experience things. But like I said, what got me really jazzed up this, this afternoon was what you were talking about. Like, I, I think there for a while it was thought of just for nerds, but as as I'm talking to you and as I'm thinking about things that are going on, that it's going to be a real factor in the next 10 years. Agree. And if if we are called nerds for this, I'm all for it. <laughs> Go for it. Whatever you call it, as well as we as, as long as we can get our kids better, I'm 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 going to put my hat in. Yeah, I'm I'm for better kids. Oh wait, political campaign. I'm for better kids, less anxiety, less depression and health healthier kids. <laughs> <laughs> And anybody who disagrees with that, well, anyways, that'll, that'll probably make some people depressed if I say that, so we're not going to go there. Um, 
What else? What else am I missing about you? Because I feel like I I barely skimmed the surface of you today. After you sent me these great links, and I I, I kind of got into them, but I feel like I'm still missing something that is really obvious to you. Well, no, I, I think we we talked about the areas that I'm passionate about. I would love to hear what your um, listeners think about the things we talked about. I I hope um, you were able with your questions, and I was able with with descriptions to tell people that. There's someone out there looking for you and your children. But when we talked about COVID, when we're talking about pain, when we talk about caring for the sick and the injured, uh, you know, my my hope is that people are going to be happier and uh, feel that there is work done every day, 24 hours a day, in order to make sure that their family is better, safer, happier, and, and more content. This is so important to me and to my colleagues and to probably everyone who's listening, uh, especially when, the, when things are tough, especially when people lose work or reduced income, they read some terrible news and, and feel somewhat depressed, even if it's not clinically depressed, feel down. It's, it's important to remember what are the good things that are out there and, and you know, you're bringing it to your show. Uh, understanding that there is good out there. We just need to search for that and maybe help, maybe give a, a, a helping hand to this. Yeah, I, I think knowledge is key, too, and I, that's why I'm glad to bring you on to kind of, I don't want to say dispel some of the myths, but, man, I'm sure you've, uh, I don't even want to ask you some of the crazy stuff you've heard through the last few months because I'm sure that you've heard some crazy stuff because I've seen it on social media, so I'm sure you've heard it one way or the other. And uh, so I'm glad to get some actual good information out there from somebody who is out there paying attention to it and doing it every day. So, again, I appreciate your time tonight so much because I just wanted to make sure that we're um, getting some good information out there. So, Jim, just to end, I'll tell you, you are doing this important work because I'm seeing a, a few patients here and there in my practice that come to emerge, I don't know, maybe 40 people, 40 families an evening. So over a year in our emergency, we're seeing 60,000 families every year, and we can impact the care they give to their children. What you're doing in shows like you that are syndicated, that are going out there to millions of people probably are eventually listening listening to this, this is a huge impact for our communities and our people. So I want to thank you for doing this. This is truly important. I got it. Too kind. Thank you. And hey, anytime you're welcome back on if you have something else you want to talk about or some updates about the virtual reality because that's just mind blowing to me. So you're you're gonna you're gonna I'm gonna be paying more attention to you in the next year because I with kids and I, I'm just gonna you know start playing with it myself. So again, th- thanks for opening my eyes to that because that's just critical to me. Thank you. Have a good evening, sir. Thank you. You too. All the best. There we go. So i got a few minutes left here. What, what do you think? Um, be sure to go tweet him. I posted his Twitter name earlier. It's on the video. Um, DR underscore R underscore Goldman. Get out there and uh, tweet at him and tell him you heard him here and thank him for his time because, uh, yeah, I, I do deeply appreciate getting the research doctor on tonight because, let me tell you, it is times it is important to uh, 
Like I told him, I'm here to document this moment. And that's what the show is becoming. Kind of documenting moments in particular days and times. So in five years and ten years, somebody who wants the context of him and his work can come back and find it. And that's mission critical around here. So um, I'm just fascinated. And so, so thankful for him to um, give me the time. Um, he was a bit skeptical of, of doing a long-form interview when we started talking about it, and I said, trust me, we'll be very well off, and here we are, 55 minutes into the show. Uh, I promised I want to keep him around 30, 35, and um, obviously he was into the conversation, so we got a little bit more time out of him. So I am truly blessed to have, have had this experience, and I, I just sit here and think, you know, I've been doing a lot of thinking about where we're headed with the show where we're headed notice I say where we are headed because without you there is no us there's no me and um, 10 years is right around the corner the big the big number of 500 shows is creeping up on me fast right and to think of where we were and tonight where we are tonight is really really truly humbling to me to have risen from where we were to where we are and um, trying to keep the trajectory high is important. I don't want to overstate that, and I don't want to oversell what I'm doing as I'm sitting here wearing a Scooby-Doo t-shirt, right, and um, still being a little loose around the edges with everything, but it's important. It's, um, it's really good. Yeah, and I've I've asked several people through the course of the last few months which one of those numbers is bigger, 500 or 10 years, and the resounding answer is 10 years because you can do 500 in just over a year and a half. So, um, and I've been trying to be way more intentional in giving back to other podcasters, doing trying to do more interviews, trying to um, be a better member of that community as well as every community. Oh boy, Germantown Runner, you are correct. I have I've got to note that as well. Joe Morgan passed away this past week. I want to say Friday, but I'm not 100 percent sure about that. Does it? That isn't the point. Um, being the baseball finishy audio that I was at one point in my life, uh, Sunday night baseball was the thing, right? Um, didn't have the satellite, so you got ESPN and you got your local sports networks. So Sunday night baseball was the night to watch baseball, and Joe Morgan was a part of every one of those Saturday, Saturday Sunday night baseballs that I watched. And also, um, I am going to get this statistic wrong, but I'm going to try to butcher it anyways, just because it kind of speaks to the volume of him. Uh, Fifty uh, extra base hits, fifty stolen bases, and a hundred bases on balls. He did that four seasons in the major leagues, and nobody else in the history of the game has ever done it. Um, which is just uh, mind blowing to me, and I don't, I can't understand how it hasn't happened with all the talent that's been through there, and just like I said, one of those great voices from what I how I grew up is is now gone as well, and the other part of that big red machine story is when I was learning how to play baseball, and uh, there's all these great stories about all that stuff, but the the model that I was used to learn how to hit was Pete Rose, so obviously I paid a lot of attention as I could get in back into those big red machine days to watch Pete and I think Pete and Cal Ripken and you know there's other names and you're, you know I'm a, as a Western Pennsylvania kid I can't help but think about Roberto Clemente and 
in the impact, right, of those names on the sport and then in the real world, the difference between them. But nevertheless, that isn't why we're here tonight, and that's kind of a personal connection here. But I just wanted to mention the passing of Joe Morgan because he was another one of those voices in my life that you probably hear some inflection somewhere along the line because I listened to him a lot and it was a critical time in my life where you could, you know, watch, watch a lot of baseball and paid attention to it. So I just want to take my take a moment and thank him and thank him for what he did for the sports world. So that being said, almost out of time now that I've kind of cleaned that mess up. And I just want to make sure everybody tunes in next Tuesday night because we're going to be doing something great. I'm not sure what we're at yet, but we'll get there. Have a good night. Hit Pass Moto, sponsored by Moto America, is the show that keeps you up to speed on the latest in motorcycling and brings the biggest names in motorcycle racing right to you. From candid interviews with the top names in racing to providing insights into the trends and trendsetters driving the motorcycle industry, we have you covered. New episodes are available every Thursday at pitpassmoto.com and on your favorite podcast app. Ride on!